Let me just jump in. If you're new in the room, we're in the middle of a series looking at the book of James. It's a series where we've been looking at faith that, faith that perseveres, faith that obeys, faith that loves. And today is going to be faith that acts. And um, I've mentioned this before, but again, if you're new in the room, James is like a really short book. If you want to have a quick read, this is a quick one. It's not an easy one, but it is a quick one. Five chapters, 108 verses. But honestly, it isn't easy because the Bible intentionally challenges us, corrects us, and rebukes us. I don't, know, I don't know if you've ever found that, but I just want to remind us of that. And I know I often do, because it's actually supposed to. Um, so I know sometimes it catches us by surprise, but we should actually be inviting it to challenge us and correct us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That's what it's supposed to be doing. So when you're like, oh, this is challenging me, or hang on a minute, this is correcting me, or this is teaching me a different way, or actually, this feels a bit uncomfortable. Um, that's, that's, I think, well, I don't think, I know that's what it's meant to be doing. Um, if I'm really honest, part of me has been praying, and praying pretty significantly, uh, that Jesus would come back before I had to share with you the next little chapter in James. Uh, and unless I'm mistaken and we're in some kind of parallel universe, uh, we're going to have to dig into this one. Uh, there's elements of James that are a bit uncomfortable, but forewarned is forearmed. And uh, it's kind of funny, forewarned is forearmed really means prior knowledge of the fact that there's some dangers or problems ahead and it will give you a tactical advantage and I think that tactical advantage is basically this all scripture is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives it corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right and God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work so I guess I've kind of warned you this is quite a hard one I think so we're going to look at James 2 14 to 19, the main, the main thing as we, as we look at it is kind of this. Faith in our hearts is evident or should be evident in the fruit in our lives. Just, just before I kind of go any further, did some of you go like, oh, because that's, that's what I did when I read it. Faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit in our lives. What that really means is we can't just talk about this thing. We've actually got to do it but also what we're doing needs to reflect the thing that we talk about and the thing that we say we believe. I was walking with our youngest daughter to school this week, and, and she's six, and she's walking with her school friend. She leans into her. She puts her arm around her, and, and she says very proudly and very loudly, do you know my dad? And uh, then she's about to tell this little other person something about me. And I've heard her do this kind of thing quite a few times. She's about to tell her something about my life and something about my habits. And it is one of those moments, I don't know if you've had it, where the world just seems to stand still. Everything goes quiet. Even the passing cars seem to stop. And every other parent on the playground focuses in on, on what she's about to say. And you can just hear like a pin drop. And she's like do you know my dad? And I'm like, oh, what's it going to be this time? What's she going to share? And uh, sometimes, you know, I, I was like trying to almost preempt, what is she going to share? Like sometimes he's a bit flexible with temporary traffic lights. 
Is that, are, are any of you flexible with those things? Are they more of just a warning than a, I don't know. And um, we, but we, I think we can have a theory so easily on what it means to follow Jesus, but it's got to result in lives radically transformed. What we say should be what we do, and what we do should be what we say. It's not just information, it's transformation. And I stand before you here um, partly as a hypocrite in one sense. I'm trying to be different. I'm trying to change, but I've got to be honest, I haven't sorted it all out yet. But what is complicated, I would say, is I can't do the thing that I used to do in a church when I was younger, that I'd hear a talk and I'd hear that it was challenging and I'd hear that it was speaking into things and I'd think, oh, you need to hear this. This, this one's for you. Like row two, four in, this one's going to, this one's, who's row two, four in? This, but this is going to get you. Or I'd be thinking, oh, I wish they were here today. You know, I'm going to send them the recording of this one because this one's going to get them. The Spirit's going to convict them on this one. Have you ever done that? You see, the, the, the problem is this, is, this is kind of on me, which therefore this is kind of also on you because I've got to sit before the Lord and I've got to say, well, here's me, change me, shape me, mold me. It's not just information, actually it's supposed to be transformation. And James is about to make three pretty straight talking points. And he's going to say this, the first one, faith in our hearts needs to be evident in the fruit in our lives. Secondly, people who fail to help poverty-stricken fellow believers are in fact not saved. I kind of wish Jesus would come back before we get to that one. And then if he's not come back by the time we get to that one, please come back by the time we get to point three, which is ultimately deedless faith is useless faith. Deedless faith is useless faith. Let's have a look at the passage. James 2, 14 to 19, it says this. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? You see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, anyone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say, have faith, for you believe that there is one God good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? And I guess I kind of want to say, thanks for coming. Uh, let's break down into small groups, go home and chat about it in our own homes and reflect on this. Because, I don't know, it's kind of not easy, is it? James is almost playing out this conversation with this imaginary person, a person who claims to have faith but doesn't have deeds, and a person who claims that you can separate faith from works. And this was obviously common throughout and among James's readers. James strikes me as a guy who talks pretty straight, 
and doesn't mess about. And I, I kind of also want to be careful that you don't misunderstand what he's trying to say. I think what he's actually trying to do is highlight three main truths, and each one kind of repeats itself. Faith without works is dead. Verse 14, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but you don't show it by your actions? Verse 24 kind of gives us the answer. He says this, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. The word faith pops up in the book of James 16 times. 11 are in this passage. In the five times the word faith is found outside of this passage, it's always used positively. But of the 11 times it's used in this passage, eight are used in, conge- in conjunction with this imaginary person who claims to have faith but no deeds. And James is not, he's actually not contrasting someone who has immature faith with someone who has mature faith. He's not contrasting someone who has nominal faith with someone who has authentic faith. He's telling us that you either have faith that saves or you don't. And there's no middle ground. There's no in between. So I guess my first point is kind of this. Faith in our hearts needs to be evident in the fruit in our lives. James tells us to be people that look for fruit. Now, he's, he's not saying that we need to add deeds to faith in order to be saved. Honestly, don't, please don't misunderstand that. That is, that is wrong. This is honestly grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no ifs and there's no buts. But what he is saying is that deeds are the fruit of faith and that real, genuine, true faith produces fruit. This, this means that if there's no fruit, he's kind of saying there's no faith. Now, before we just chuck James out and say, hang on a minute, mate, you've gone too far. We can't say that. Let's just see what Je- uh, Jesus said <clears throat> in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this in Matthew 7, verse 16. You can identify them. This is Jesus speaking. You can identify them by their fruit. That is by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, you can also identify people by their actions. I guess when you then jump back to James and what he said in the light of reading what Jesus just said, what James said is actually a little bit more palatable. You know, because if you see a tree and you see an apple tree, you know you're going to get apples because you see apples on the tree. You're going to get apples. What is on the outside is evidence of what is on the inside. That's what James is saying. Fruit in our lives is evidence of faith in our hearts. And if there's no fruit, there's no faith. It's kind of that simple. You will know faith by its fruit. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, if you're suddenly panicking, of course we're on this ever-changing journey. Of course we grow, and of course we mature. We have to keep growing because we're meant to keep maturing, because we're meant to keep producing fruit. Now, this... 
simple truth kind of sets us up and sets the stage for this jaw-dropping truth that's about to land in verse 15 to 17, and it's illustrated by this hypothetical situation. And it's kind of this. People who fail to help poverty-stricken fellow believers are, in fact, not saved. I kind of feel like I just want to quick send someone out just to check, see if Jesus has come back. But I, I know that truth might sound harsh, but is it not the truth? James mentions a brother or sister who, verse 15, is without clothes and lacks daily food. And in their poverty... They don't even have a covering from the cold as they stand shamed and miserable. They literally don't have food for the day. They're starving because they're unable to sustain themselves. That's not kind of like mild, small need. That is desperate, dire need. And then if you say to that person, hey, go in peace, keep warm, eat well. As it says in verse 16, James is kind of saying, what, what good is that? Is that faith? Verse 16. In the starkness of that example, surely we'd agree. But if Jesus has changed my life, if he softened me and softened my heart to love him and to love others and to care for the last, the lost and the least, surely I can't walk away from that scenario. But also, surely, it's going to cost me something of my time and my attention and my money and my resources. Now, you can kind of do cartwheels all around this text and try and find a way of watering it down. But it's kind of there. And actually, if we dig around a little bit, 1 John 3.17 says this, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in need but shows no compassion... How can God's love be in that person? I guess the implications are it kind of can't be. For faith to be growing in us, it means our love, not just our tolerance, but our acceptance of each other and those around us needs to shift. Now, honestly, my heart is deeply warmed by what I see among us. Our love for each other, our love for reaching into need, our love and desire to do things like 422. Some of the stories I've even heard just this week of what some of you are up to is actually the stuff we're called to do and called to be. And I love it, but passages like this are such a stark reminder of who we're meant to be and what we're meant to be called to. I'm called to love you in your brokenness and you, me, in mine. When it gets a bit messy, when our stuff collides, when we bring our hurts and our pains and they stick out and they become front and center, when one of us has rough edges that starts to leave a bit of a burn and a bit of a spike in someone else, not just among us, but in our workplace, on our streets, in our community. Good deeds create environments of goodwill. And environments of goodwill allow us to share the good news. Our faith should look like we have faith. We should look continually more like Jesus and be seeking out his reign and his rule in our lives. We often say, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. 
We're meant to be people that are changed and ever-changing in his presence. Now, there is a danger in everything I've just said so far, and I kind of have tried to be clear, but I just want to be doubly clear, just in case you've misunderstood me. Firstly, it's this. Acts of mercy are not means to salvation. We're not saved by what we do. That is not what I'm saying. If you're panicking that I'm saying that, you would be right to be panicking if I was saying that. But that's not what I said. James is not teaching that we're saved by our actions. He's already showed us in chapter 1, verse 17. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in heaven. Verse 21. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. It's all grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And James makes clear that faith is something that God gives. This isn't something we, we manufacture. I cannot be emphasizing that honestly enough. We're saved by abundant grace and the glorious initiative of God. But acts of mercy are not a means to salvation. We don't help the poor in order to be saved. Rather than being the means to salvation, acts of mercy are necessary evidence of salvation. Does that make sense? We might call acts of mercy almost like the natural overflow of salvation. Never, James never um, speaks of deeds we do in order to earn some kind of favor before God. James always speaks of deeds as fruit produced by faith that we have in Jesus. This is simply a reiteration of that last truth, that the fruit of our faith is mercy towards others. It's mercy towards the poor. And if there's no mercy towards the poor, he's kind of saying, hey guys, is, where's the faith? Do you have faith? Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of a Christian that it is used to test our true faith. Mercy is not optional or an addition to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the sign of genuine faith. Matthew 22, verse 35, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Verse 40, and the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Ministering to the poor brother or sister is equated with ministering to Jesus himself. Almost in a real way, Jesus is in that brother and sister to whom you're ministering to their need. So is it possible for us to see Jesus hungry and not feed him? Is it possible for us to see Jesus thirsty and not give him something to drink? Absolutely not. The natural overflow of our heart is to serve. Our eternal acts of mercy are clear evidence of the internal mercy of God in our hearts. 
acts of mercy are not the means of salvation, but they're necessary evidence of salvation. This point is so important because we've got to remember that guilt isn't the motivation for caring for others, for caring for the poor. The gospel motivates us to care for the poor. We provide for the poor, for others, because we're compelled by the mercy of God that has radically transformed our hearts and his mercy overflows from our lives. I love it how Charles Spurgeon once said it when he's talking about the saints being fed and the hungry and clothed and that were previously naked in Matthew 25 that I just read. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He says, the saints fed the hungry and clothed the naked because it gave them so much pleasure to do so. They did it because they couldn't not do it. Their new nature impelled them to do it. They did it because it was their delight to do good. They did good for, the, for Christ's sake because it was the sweetest thing in the world to do anything for Jesus. You see, this morning, if you almost stand in this place of guilt or shame, I just want to knock that off you because I'm not trying to cause you to feel guilt about what you don't do. But I'm trying to encourage you to see what you could do. Because being inconvenienced by and for others, letting others into your home, spending your time, your money, and your heart on others is what we're called to do. Relaxing slightly on, oh, this is my time. This is my way of living, and nobody gets to interrupt that. Realizing that when including people in our lives and peoples whose lives are actually broken and hurting and collide and say and do silly stuff and it gets a bit messy, that it's okay. And that actually we start to realize that we're just wounded healers who get to help others and point others to the comforter, to the healer, to the prince of peace, to the rock of ages, to the one who is truth, who is the way and the one who gives life. Do you see what I mean? Because then it all just becomes part of it. If, if you kind of read this passage and you find yourself and you go, well, it doesn't really challenge me. We have, you know, faith with deeds. I, I, I get it. I'm like, really? Because I think we only just have to look at our calendar and our bank balance. And we have to look at our jokes and our conversations and we have to look at who we might or who we're willing to have around for, for, for a meal. Because the fruit of our faith should be evident in our lives. We get to practice the way of Jesus. And whilst it would sometimes be easier if it was easier, it kind of cost him everything. And I've often found that it really cost me. I'm just trying to watch the football. Do we really need to have this conversation right now? I'm just trying to have a day off. Do you really need to be interrupting me right now? I'd rather have a lie-in than... I'd love it if I didn't have to pay this time. But you kind of that list of things could be endless if we make it a list. But I guess I want to say this. What about if we saw it as a joy? What about if we saw it as evidence of the transformative power of God in our lives rather than an inconvenience? And then actually we welcomed it 
for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Verse 40, and the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. What about when, when, when we serve others, when we see their needs and we see their brokenness and we see their inability to pay us back? Or they bring their pains and their hurts and they chuck them in your face and they seem ungrateful and almost rude. What about it's actually a joy to be there in those moments because we're serving Jesus, his church, and its cause? What about it's actually him we're serving and in the process we become more like him? I think when we see it like that, it's less of a cost. It's more of a case of, Actually, is there anything you wouldn't give? Hey, do you want, do you need more? I don't see it as you've thrown it in my face. I'm like, hang on, is there actually something else I could do to help you in this moment? What, what do you need? Because I'm giving it to Jesus. I, I have to be honest, I kind of got to this point thinking about this and I was a bit undone because I'm not, who I was, but I'm still not who I'm created to be. I'm grateful for his grace. I'm grateful for Philippians 1.6. I'm certain that God who began the good work within me will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day the Christ Jesus returns. But I prayed again as virtually I do every day, but in the light of this passage, I prayed, Lord, can I do life a little bit more your way rather than my way? Would you renew me, refresh me, and increase my heart and capacity for others? Would I just be loose change in your pocket to spend as you like, where I've become battle-worn, where I've become cynical, where I've become doubting, where I've become hard, where I've become stubborn? Will you soften me all over again? I'm not sure you can actually read this passage and not really have a similar moment, if you understand what it's trying to say. Because I think it calls us to action. And as I said at the start, I think all scripture is inspired by God. And it is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us where we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. And God uses it to prepare us and to equip us as his people to do every good work, to do the stuff. So I guess my kind of question to you this morning is, will you come and hold the mirror up before the Lord and see where you need to change? One final point, and this is a quick one. Jesus hasn't yet come back, so we're going to have to go there. Ultimately, deedless faith is useless faith. Hopefully saying that now makes more sense in the light and the context of everything we've looked at but verse 18 now someone may argue some people have faith and others have good deeds but i say how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds i'll show you my faith by my good deeds works deeds actions are not optional for those who have faith they're inevitable verse 20 james says how foolish can't you see that faith without deeds is useless can i leave you with Three questions. These are three questions I've been asking myself 
this week. Faith is not a mere intellectual journey. Where's, where's that become that for you? That was the question I was asking myself. As in certain areas of my life, has it just become lip service? Second question, faith is not simply an emotional response. Again, where might that have become that for you? I wonder how many people define their faith today merely by the emotions they feel at any given time. And the third one is this, faith involves a willful obedience. We show our faith not just by what we think or feel, but why, by what we do. Because faith acts. If your faith consists merely of listening to the word and talking about the word or feeling a certain way about the word, I don't think that's what we're called to. Because faith acts on the word and faith is evident in the fruit of our lives. My final thing I want us to kind of ponder is this. What happens for us next as a church is, is actually up to us. I believe God will do incredible things if we choose to live out all that he has for us. But we have to live it out because faith acts. We have to do something. We have to step into something. We live his way and we act his way. Why don't we stand together and just make some space for him to do exactly that? Just to increase our sensitivity to his presence. Sometimes it helps just to close your eyes, remove the distractions of those around you. Lord, we welcome you. And we offer our lives to you. happened to read this morning it says let us not become weary in doing good for at just the right time you'll reap a harvest I want to pray that the Father liberates us of weariness this morning some of you have gone and you've gone and you've gone and you've been ground down and worn down and You've spent yourself and given yourself. And I want us to pray that the giver of life, the wellspring of life, would put an unstoppable birthing of his life in you to go again.
some of you there's it's like a it's, it's a thing you say rather than a thing you do and you've got life choices and decisions and sometimes it's so easy to get picked off by culture and popularity and I just want to say come back to the holiness of God come back to the place where you have to take your shoes off to stand in his presence don't, don't miss the moment of what the Lord's doing right now in this room you sense the tangible presence of God Father, we welcome you. Yeah, I felt really similar this morning that, uh, similar to what Paul was just saying, that the Lord was inviting us again to just come. To just come, to come to his presence. That is where we are healed. That is where we're transformed. That is, yeah, where we are set free. But this invitation to bring our whole selves, to commit our whole selves to come again. feel some of you have like almost been um, guilted or shamed into doing or even personally you felt like you have to do because it offsets something I just want to encourage you to come again before the grace of God come and be his child before anything else come and be loved Come and know it's not what you do, it's who you are because of who he is. There were some specific words as we were praying this morning that somebody, um, that the, the, the name Matilda would mean something to somebody, that that would be quite significant. The name means battle mighty. There was a real sense around healing from disease particularly over children there was a strong sense about oh, it's funny in that how we actually sang it but not losing heart he's here and there was a very specific word about somebody with um if you if you think of your uh, your front two teeth just go one round to the right that that third tooth round uh if you have are in pain with that this morning and always that is unsettled or requiring treatment we'd love to chat with you there was a very specific prophetic word about that tooth but I think the Lord is here you can see the evidence of that among us and I I want to encourage a number of you to step into a place of allowing others to stand alongside you and to pray into that
There'll be many things that we haven't mentioned, many physical healing circumstances, things coming up in your weeks. Just let the Lord bless you. Keep you. Turn his face towards you. Shower and embed his peace upon you. Why don't, why don't we res- respond while we're stood? It's easier to get out. Some of you are going to want to come to the front and allow others to join with you and pray with you. <clears throat>